All right. Keep it on or take it off. I mean, I'm good looking either way. What is this? Oh, we, we hired a big five pen test puppy mill. Why does that puppy have a 400 page output from a scanner? It's what they do. They show up in large numbers and they run tools. They're cute. They're pretty much worthless. How? How? They don't. They don't even have thumbs. Wait, wait. That one just crapped in the corner. Yeah, they do that too. Don't support pen test puppy mills. Contact Black Hills Information Security. I just got some of my shoe. Consulting at BlackHillsInfosec.com. Here we are. There's a picture of me. You've seen me already. You got a picture of me on your screen. Black Hills Information Security, Security Weekly co-host. I do Sans teaching once in a while, and this is our basic agenda for today why are we doing this slash goodbye v4 ipv6 fundamentals we're going to do some lessons today on v6 fundamentals we're going to do a short section on securing the v6 things and then have a little bit of miscellaneous fun discussion at the end and then we will wrap it up one hour is not a tremendously long amount of time so a little bit of history IPv4 was designed in the 1970s. The Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, DARPA, actually was the original instigator of V4. An amazing, successful experiment. We ran out of numbers. And they started predicting we were going to run out of numbers pretty quickly, in fact, in the late 70s, early 80s. And so it's like, well, we need another version of IPv4. And so they work both on IPv5 and 6, started pretty soon afterwards. Now, what does IPv6 actually give us? Well, the obvious is more than adequate address space. Finally, it has eliminated our favorite or not-so-favorite bolt-on protocol, that being the address resolution protocol. More about that later in the presentation. It also remedies the global route table disaster. We have had amazing success preserving IPv4, but the act of preserving IPv4 has forced us into a position of introducing network address translation, has forced us into a position of introducing classless internet domain routing, and has exponentially grown the IP backbone route tables because of that classless routing. Now, what about security? Mythbuster. No more or not more or less secure than V4. When you start looking into it, you're like, some of the early claims were V6 is more secure than V4. Woohoo, it's got IPsec built in. Um, okay, we've been doing IPsec for how long? It's just different. That's the thing. And I'm going to talk about the differences in V6. Quick V4 timeline visit. The standard was actually dropped on the RFC in September of 1981. In 89, we had the very first commercial ISP also happened to be the year the wall came down. It happened to be the year that I moved to the United States. Bizarre. 89 was a really big year. In 91, there was, you know, the realization that we were going to run out of address space was already there in the 80s. So we created the routing and addressing group. And in RFC 1338, pretty soon thereafter in the early 90s, we talked about the exhaustion problem. We promote, uh, proposed classless internet domain routing in the mid 90s. To say, look, we got to do something. We're early mid 90s. We put NAT on the street in the early mid 90s. And then finally, we had RFC 1883 that was actually proposed in 1996, which really means that IPv6 itself as a technology 
is actually getting old. It's just like saying Python is the new sexy programming language, but it's not really. It's developed a long time ago, but that's the way things go. You know, ASICs and hardware, same way. They developed 10, 20, 30 years ago and they finally get into the mainstream. 2011 was a big year. IANA used the very last free block of the slash 8 IPv4 address space. The very last one. Now, that didn't mean we ran out of IPv4. It meant that all of the IPv4 had been allocated out to the regional internet registries, which is APNIC in Asia Pacific, ARIN in North America, RIPE NCC in Europe, and so forth, LACNIC in, uh, uh, in, in Latin America. So what does it actually look like in terms of the project projection of the V4 rundown model? Well, 2011 was a big inflection point, but it doesn't really show here on this screen. In fact, it's not even on the graph because all of these original, all of these uh, regional registries still had a lot of address space available for allocation. And so AFRNIC, APNIC, RIPE, LACNIC, everybody kept allocating out addresses. And the folks at Potteroo.net and some others have done forward projections on the actual rundown date of V4. And guess what? Just like COVID-19, 2020 is another big year. We're finally here. 2020 is the projected year that we will absolutely have zero available IPv4 address space according to this projection model. So lucky us, the time is now to start moving. What about IPv6? The address itself, 128 bits, right? One of the common misconceptions is that IPv6 is just IPv4 with bigger addresses. No, it's not. But it does have a bigger address four times the size of IPv4. The address is expressed as hexadecimal rather than dot quadradecimal. So eight groups of four digits. You can eliminate zeros in an IPv6 address. So if you have consecutive groups of zeros in the address, you can actually use the short form notation. And these two addresses on the screen are in fact the same IPv6 address. Okay, well that doesn't look too bad, right? Easy. I mean, it's not quite as easy as 10.20.30.40, but it's not awful either. IPv6 addresses are divided into two sections. There is the network prefix section, which is the upper 64 bits. Then there is the interface ID section, which is the lower 64 bits of an IPv6 address. So typically, what the regional registries are going to do is take larger allocations out of what they have been granted from IANA and then carve out commonly slash 48s to large organization. Now, when I say slash 48, I mean 48 bits in the network portion, which leaves what? Uh, 128 minus 40 gives us 80 bits for that ISP to allocate out to organizations. They're probably going to carve out those slash 48s to various organizations and then organizations will further subnet them down into slash 64s where the actual endpoint hosts will reside at the interface ID end of the address. What happened to IPv5? That's what everybody asks, right? It used to exist. Very briefly, several organizations got together and said, we need to do something about video audio streaming and we need a protocol that does better about doing that in terms of QoS and real-time traffic, and they got together and they invented and, and actually wrote about this thing called IPv5. And 
pretty soon they realized they could backport all those mechanisms that they invented into v4 and so they pretty much abandoned the project and i don't remember the actual companies that were uh, gathered together for this but the con concept was that v5 has been used as a term and so we need to go to v6 for the next term so there was a v5 believe it or not what about allocation of ipv6 addressing well we have this is it a total of 35 address blocks allocated today. Seven of them are slash 12s. 128 minus 12 gives us, uh, what, 116 or so. Allocated to various RIRs, right? Regional internet registries. We've got a slash 16 that's allocated for six to four translation. I keep moving my cameras trying to get a focus on me. We've got a slash 18 for RIPE. We've got a couple of slash 19s for RIPE and APNIC. Three slash 20s, three slash 22s and 18 slash 23s to various regional registries. That is it. That is how IPv6 is allocated out today. And it's probably not going to change a lot from that position. I mean, there might be some subtle changes, but honestly, that's a lot of address space, a lot of address space. Okay. From a packet encapsulation perspective, v6 can be carried in Ethernet protocol 0x86DD. So you see that on your network. It's a V6 encapsulated frame. You can also tunnel V6 within IP protocol 41. So that will be six in four, which guess what, everybody? It's probably already running on your network. Congratulations. And then more importantly, IPv6 100% relies on multicast for neighbor and router discovery functions. And we're going to get into that. The bottom line is if your network is broken from a multicast perspective, you will not transmit any IPv6 at all. No multicast, no V6. You want to DOS a V6 network? Then spray out tons of Ethernet multicast and kill the switch TCAMs, and your V6 network is going to come to its knees and die a horrible death. Don't recommend that, by the way. Well, unless you're in a security testing thing and you want to do that. IPv6 address types. There are three different types of address. Anycast, unicast, and multicast. Anycast is pretty much the same as unicast. It's the same address assigned to more than one host interface. And any packets routed to anycast will arrive at the nearest or the shortest route to that particular interface on the network. Unicast is a single address assigned to a host interface. No surprise yet there. Multicast defines a group of devices interested in receiving traffic via this address. And big take home here, there is no such thing as broadcast packets in IPv6. What? There is no broadcast. It's all about multicast. Unicast and anycast addresses can actually have two scopes. There is a thing called a link local scope which can only be used on a directly attached network link. And this one must exist because there is no broadcast. Multicast operations are going to come from this address. The prefix is FEAD colon colon, all zeros slash 10. Global scope addresses are those that, that are globally routable. They can be unicast and they can be anycast addresses. Multicast addresses are defined by the four least significant bits in the second octet after the initial FF0 prefix. And there are predefined or well-known, if you like, multicast scopes. What are these predefined scopes? 
Well, they're basically this, straight from the RFCs. FF00 is reserved or unused. Hey, that's fun. What could we do with that? FF01 is known as interface local or hostbound. FF02, link local. FF03 is realm local. FF04, admin local. 05, site local. 8, organizational local. FF0E is global. So there is such a thing as participating in global multicast with V6. And there is in V4 as well, but it's better defined in V6. And then FF00F is actually reserved and unused again. Now, the interesting areas in this list are link local realm admin site and organizational. This is where you have to exert some sort of control in your network defenses, because if you don't, well, you're going to get into some interesting challenges. Realm is kind of an interesting animal. Realm has a particular definition for an application area rather than an organizational area, just to clarify that. Site and organization, well, that they're very, very similar in their nature. So with V6, how does an endpoint actually get an address? There are a number of ways. Stateless address auto configuration will actually configure an address on an endpoint automatically if it's running on the network in the slash 64 space. DHCP V6 is available. You can use DHCP to configure an address only. You can't really do anything else with it. And you can use a combination of DHCP and V6 if you like. And of course, you have static assignment. So you got to remember that the host identifier portion in an IPv6 address has 64 bits. And 64-bit subnet networks are going to be very commonly deployed in organizations. Well, think about that. That's 1.844 by 10 to the 19 addresses. That is a tremendous number of addresses in that subnet, so to speak. So what we're going to see in our V6 networks as we deploy is that the network addresses on endpoints are going to be very sparse in that subnet. They're not going to be clustered together, or if you've got any sense, they're not going to be clustered together from a security perspective. You should make them very sparse and widely distributed. All interfaces in IPv6 are going to generate a link scope local address with the FE80 prefix. Now, here's the thing that really blows people's mind. In V6, any interface on the network can have multiple addresses. And it's something that's kind of a mind bender from a V4 world. You certainly with that will have a link local scope address. You probably can have, well, you can have, not necessarily probably, a site local scope address. You will probably have a unicast global scoped address. You can even have more than one global scoped addresses. So there's an RFC 7934 that talks about Potential uses of multiple addressing in V6. So virtual machine use, for example, even per processor addressing for machines running V6 per application addressing, dual stack V4, V6 translation mechanisms and privacy addressing. So there's a lot of stuff there to consider. We're, go we're going to have to change our mindset. Any endpoint on the network can have a lot of routable V6 on it, and it can be divided up into a sort of micro-scoped application layer kind of entity, if you like. And, and we're going to see that emerge with the copious amount of 
address space that we have available. I'm going to take a brief minute to talk about the the EUI, which is the extended, I, I said enterprise, I meant extended, extended unique identifier in V6. With both link scope local and stateless link, stateless address order configuration protocol, by default, most operating systems are configured to use EUI 64 to choose the address. Now, what does this mean? What happens is the machine takes its Ethernet address and divides it into two 24-bit components, and then it inserts the hex digits 0xffe in between those two components, right? Giving us basically, what, 48 plus another 16 bits, 58, 64 bits, right, of an address. So you build a 64-bit address by leveraging your Ethernet address. And then there's a last little bit is that you flip. That's supposed to say flip, not flit. The seventh most significant bit from, from the left, if your address has a universal scope or a global scope is another way to think about that. So what's the implication of that? Well, the implication of that is... If you know the Ethernet address in your environment or you can predict it, then you know exactly what the link scope local address in a subnet is going to be of a machine. And you also can predict potentially what the global scoped address in that subnet is going to be as well. Because if Slack is leveraged along with the normal local link local scoped address selection, those two addresses are going to have a predictable Ethernet sequence of hex digits in the middle of them. ICMP in IPv6 is incredibly important. The header in ICMPv6 has the same structure as v4, and ICMPv6 and multicast are essential for IPv6 to even operate. In fact, if you don't have a functioning multicast network and you don't have functioning ICMPv6, your IPv6 is dead, no operation, right? There are four categories of message for ICMPv6. We have error messages, informational, neighbor discovery, and then other, which is sort of reserved and unused stuff. So if you're going to secure your, your infrastructure, you must defend and protect, protect both your V6, IP, ICMPv6, and your multicast. This basically is your V6 control plane. The error messages are things that you're probably used to. Type 0 is reserved. Type 1 is destination unreachable. That maps exactly to V4's type 3, right? Code 0, no route. Code 1, administratively prohibited, unassigned, address unreachable, port unreachable. Type 2 is our packet too large or MTU exceeded. We use this for MTU discovery, which is something that you want to operate in a V6 world. You need to know what the maximum transmission unit across that network path is going to be. Type 3 error message is time exceeded. So this is for fragmentation reassembly or your TTL has expired. So there's a code 0, code 1. Type 4 is a parameter problem, which also is important to transit in your network for erroneous header type, unrecognized headers, and unrecognized IPv6 option. Types 5 through 127 in ICMPv6 are reserved and unassigned, meaning you can use them for covert data or whatever you want to use them for. 
or you need to filter them appropriately. I think CJ has a question. I cannot hear you, CJ. Your lips move, but I cannot hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. The mute button. It's always double. All right. For small and mid-sized business, do you see them continuing to run IPv4 internally as a viable solution over, like, say, five to seven years? Yeah, so for a small, mid-sized business, I, I don't think you're going to have an option but to use dual stacking, which is running both protocols, for a period of time. From a security perspective, unfortunately, I think dual stacking is a nightmare because dual stacking means you're basically doing double the work to defend your V6 back backbone as well as you're defending your V4 backbone. So it's a really tough call. I strongly suggest that people who want to experiment with V6 start out in a DMZ, start out in a cloud infrastructure, do it with something that's that's internet facing and and secure it right with my recommendations that I'm going to give out and get yourself some familiarity familiarity probably with a dev QA something that is not necessarily mission critical yet until you actually jump on board. Then move towards your internal network and exploring what you want to do there. That's the way I did it as I put together all this material as well. Nice. So this user, Brian, is doing dual stack at home. He wants to know, how does he know if he's got a slash 48 or a slash 56? How do I know what my slash 48 or slash 56 is? How do you know what my slash 48 So it depends on how he's doing it and how his router is uh, supplying it. I would look at the route table. If you're in a Linux box, you can certainly do a netstat-nr6. If you're in Windows, I believe the same command works, although I'd have to experiment a little. I didn't spend much time there on the Windows side in my v6 testbed to look at it. But you want to, you want, what you want to look for is the prefix on the route advertisement in your route table. You also want to know why they hand out so many. Slash 48 is, is it even a slash 64. That's so insane. Why, why hand out so many? Because we can. And think about this, and I've got a little bit of discussion later. If you do away with NAT, which is entirely the direction we're heading, it is better to spread your end hosts very sparsely inside your network so that you cannot necessarily predict what those endpoint addresses are going to be inside your organization. Right? So scanning is a significant challenge. So it's actually an extra obscurity feature, much like NAT was an extra obscurity feature to have sparse addressing inside the network. Yeah, one of the clients asks is, how do you scan this? <laughs> yeah, you don't. No, we'll, we'll get to that. We got a, we've got another slide on that. Awesome. Um, good. Any more? If there's any I, more questions, we'll run out of slide time. So. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, will, I will preserve some. Take it away. All right, sounds good. Informational messages that I see in PV6, that, uh, they are the ones that you're used to. Echo request, echo reply. Um, there are also multicast listener query report and done to deal with multicast operations in your switch network, uh, which are also required to uh, pass. This is where it gets interesting. Neighbor discovery. So remember I said that address resolution protocol is gone and broadcast is gone. We still have to have a way to map the Ethernet address to the IPv6 address. And so the question becomes, what is the way to do that? Not only that, we still have, a, have to have a way to tell the endpoints in our subnetworks 
what their route tables should look like. So there are two ICMP v6 protocols. Uh, they're really advertised as one in the RFC that actually communicate over multicast to deal with the issue of actual mapping the Ethernet address to the address and telling the endpoint what the route table would look like. First of all, there's router solicitation and advertisement. This is types 133 and 134. And I put in a little bubble there. It's like DHCP, only that it gives you potentially route and DNS info. You can even actually give it the DNS server through ICMP 134, for example, advertisement. Now, the danger with this is that if you allow hosts in your network to, let's just say, ad hoc, use router advertisement packets, guess what you're doing? You're via multicast informing your other hosts in that subnetwork, here's some new routes. Now, how could that possibly go wrong? All right, you're all security people, you know how that can go wrong. Back to address resolution protocol, the way address resolution protocol works is neighbor solicitation and neighbor advertisement. And this is pretty much a direct mapping of address resolution protocol only in an IPv6 and a multicast world. And then there's type 137, which is our ICMP redirect. So as if we didn't have enough problems with V4 with our IP options that do things like strict source routing and loose source routing, and also with our ICMP redirects to redirect a host and redirect a network, the gifts of the technologists that be decided to give us redirect for v6 so we can actually do all that same fun and defending in the v6 world as well and then of course we have 138 through 161 which are assigned by anna for various purposes a lot of them are experimental 162 up through 255 icmp v6 is reserved and unassigned means use them for your covert channels no, it means filter them appropriately and defend your networks. So a quick slide on neighbor discovery so you can see how address resolution protocol, aka V6, actually works. If node A is looking to talk to node B on a network, node A sends out a neighbor solicitation. Node B looks at those packets because they're sent to multicast, right? And it says, hey, Inside of that node solicitation, I can see that I'm the guy he's looking for. And so node B will actually return back a neighbor advertisement packet back directly to node A. And that's the way they learn of each other's addresses on the network. And it is really very much analogous to address resolution protocol, only it is performed over V6 and with multicast destinations instead of unicast. That are broadcast. Okay, that is as, as much fundamentals as I'm going to do in this short amount of time. Let's talk about securing the V6 things and some of the security concerns that I haven't already talked about. I'm going to divide this up into roughly, what do we got there? Five, six categories. Address filtering is the first one. ICMP v6 filtering is obviously going to be on the horizon. Multicast filtering needs to be in scope. Protocol normalization is an issue because of the extension headers in v6. And then the privacy, obscurity, and route table issues associated with EUI64 address assignment. So let's jump into it. 
First of all, Return of the Bogons. So everybody might remember defending your V4 networks. There used to be this concept of un unallocated V4 space. And every network administrator worth their salt went out and got the list of unallocated IPv4 addresses and configured a filter at the perimeter of that network that said, thou shalt not send traffic to me if you are not an allocated address on the network. But then we ran out of V4 and every address was allocated. So you couldn't really get away with that. And I remember I used to get pestered all the time back in the days when I ran networks. A lot of IPv6 is completely unallocated space. So the concept of bogan addresses is back. You need to filter your bogons appropriately. In other words, if a packet is sourced from an address that does not exist in the list of 35 allocated blocks from IANA as of today, thou shalt not let it enter the network. Don't do it. Okay? Now, I've got a little bit of Aussie lingo up here. Cactus understands. Cactus is listening. Cactus Maxis. There's a thing called a bogan in Australia. Bogan. And uh, I just, whenever I think of bogans, it reminds me of bogans. If you know an Aussie, you can find out what that means. Anti-spoofing. This is something you should do at the perimeter of your network. No packet with a source address that is inside of your network allocation should be able to enter your network. No packet with a destination address of your network al allocation should be able to leave your network. In other words, make sure you put those common sense protections in place because you don't want somebody spoofing a packet from your network from outside your network and making something go terribly wrong inside the network. Anti-spoofing completely works the same way as it would work with V4. You can construct an ACL on a Cisco router or just construct an IP tables rule or whatever your packet filter device of choice is. ICMP v6 perimeter filtering is going to be a big topic. Two categories of traffic in ICMP v6. Traffic initiated from the perimeter security device and traffic that is in transit across the perimeter security device. Starting off with transit traffic recommendations. First of all, we're security people. Always start with a deny all approach and then allow traffic selectively. So allow type one destination unreachable and maybe filter on specific codes such as port unreachable. Same as you would do in V4. Allow type two packet too large. You want to do this because MTU discovery is part of the V6 protocol. And you will break some V6 communication if you do not allow path MTU discovery. Allow type 3 code 0 only, which is TTL hop expired, so that traceroute works, more or less. Okay. Allow type 4 code 0 and 1 only related to the header errors. So be very specific with your filtering across the perimeter with IPv6, ICMP v6, sorry. Optionally allow types 128 and 129, which is echo request reply. We know that that is a policy decision in IPv4 by selective organizations. So you can make that choice. If you do not want to allow echo request and reply in V6, then don't. Okay. Make that choice for yourself. Allow ICMP types 144 through 147 only if your V6 network is mobility enabled. And that is a class of transportable address in the V6 world, 
I sort of hope you don't do that for the more secure minded organizations. And then optionally allow ICMP multicast related messages, which are 151 to 153. That is only applicable if you are participating in global multicast routing. If you are not participating in global multicast, then don't do this. Filter it. And then finally, our favorite packet, the ICMP type 137, a redirect represents a direct security threat and should always be dropped at your perimeter. Okay, this is literally host redirect, network redirect, the same thing, the same legacy that we've inherited from v4 and you need to get rid of it. Traffic initiated from perimeter security devices, same concept applies. Start with a denial policy, use essentially the same recommendations as I have for the transit policy above, except for the exception of the mobility enabled, same kind of idea. You do want to allow additional messages with your non-transit or your perimeter security devices because you will need router solicitation and advertisement and you will need neighbor solicitation and advertisement and you potentially will need inverse neighbor solicitation and, and advertisement. So be a little careful there because you need to be able to do the op. You need to be able to find the next neighbor on the network when you're on that perimeter. I hear a question coming from CJ. Shoot, sir. Go back a little, maybe. I was kind of waiting to see if they were going to be addressed. Is there a limit to the number of addresses per interface? So you divided one into two. Is that the limit is two, or does it go more? To my understanding, there is not a limit to the number of addresses per interface. You can just keep on going. Okay. Nice. Now, there could be, I mean, I have to be careful with that. Encoded into the kernel drivers, I'm sure there is some upper limit somewhere. You're not likely to stri uh, strike that with you know things less than 10. Uh, you, you're just going to have to experiment, and we're going to see some things come out there uh, as people start deploying. How does network segmentation work within this? Is it similar to the old school? Do you still need to do it? or? Yeah, so network segmentation with V6 is exactly the same as you might do it in V4. What's typically going to happen, though, is organizations are going to be granted a slash 48. So 128 bits. Minus 48 gives that organization 80 bits of address space to subdivide across their network. That is, and then, and then what they will likely do, because it's the way that V6 is written in the standards, is they will grant subnetworks that are slash 64 across their organization. It is possible to subnet at a longer prefix if you want to, okay? But there are some caveats to that. If you subnet at a longer prefix, let's say you take a slash 72 or something like that. First of all, stateless, stateless address order configuration will fail. You, you are throwing yourself into a DHCP world, at least in my experience, when I've been experimenting over the past three or four weeks. And second of all, you need to make sure you adhere to nibble boundaries because you want to keep things in terms of the route tables evenly padded uh, on the the uh, nibble nibble boundaries better even if they're eight bit boundaries just to keep the route table clean so yeah multicast filtering is going to be a necessity you need to be careful to distinguish the perimeter from your internal network when you are doing multicast filtering remember i said that ipv6 and icmpv6 work hand in hand with multicast at layer two so you have to have neighbor discovery and router discovery protocols working on the internal uh, side of your network. But you need to do that with some additional caveats. 
end hosts cannot and should not permitted be permitted to advertise as routers. That means an end host can attack the inside of that subnet and send out routes to some destinations which take the traffic through the end host, which take the traffic out on the internet somewhere. End hosts should not be advertising routes. End hosts should not be gratuitously responding to neighbor solicitation. That's also similar to, to gratuitous R, right? Perimeter devices, as I've said before, they need to use neighbor discovery, but we should not have neighbor discovery messages transiting the perimeter. Don't let that happen. That should not be allowed to occur. The likely assumption for most folks deploying V6 is that you're not going to participate in global interdomain multicast. That is something that you'll see possibly in educational institutions or very large institutions that have consortiums in a region, but individual organizations are not likely going to want to participate in global, global interdomain multicast. So you need to filter that multicast. First of all, first principle, any packet with a multicast source address is not normal and should immediately be dropped on your perimeter. Reserved and unused multicast destinations need to be dropped, which you can go back and refer to my multicast destinations table. Probably most other multicast destinations will be blocked in a perimeter context anyway, because you're not going to likely cross that organizational perimeter for multicast participation. Realm local is something that is a specific technology focus, and so that's going to be dependent on the policy surrounding that particular technology, and that's kind of an unwritten unwritten kind of entity now. There's some Realm local, but there's going to be more. Now, one of the really difficult areas in IPv6 is protocol normalization. Some of you might know that IPv6 has a protocol header field called next header. Most of you are probably thinking, if I've got an IPv6 frame, then the next header is obviously going to be my layer four header. It's going to be, you know, my TCP header or my UDP header. And you would be right, sort of. There are other headers called extension headers that can exist before that OSI layer four header. And they can be chained into the packet. Now, I don't think this is necessarily a good idea, but these chained headers can be numerous to give various directions for that frame to be processed when it is received. Let's take a look at some of the options. One of them, protocol zero, is an IPv6 hop by hop option. Does anybody remember loose source routing and strict source routing in IPv4? This is identical, and so danger ahead, as I put up there. A routing header for v6 can be inserted. A fragmentation header for v6 can be inserted. An encapsulating security payload, i.e. IPsec ESP, can be, in header, can be inserted. The IPsec authentication header can be inserted, and so on. Right? There's lots of different headers, and there's a whole bunch that are experimentation and testing headers as well that can exist in the IPv6 frame. Now, there is a set of rules and an order of rules that we use to process these headers. First of all, any extension he header should not appear more than once, with the exception of the destination options header. The hop-by-hop -hop options header, which is that protocol zero, should always be the first header in the list. The destination options header, protocol 60, should be at the end of the list. 
and appear at most twice. Believe it or not, these are the actual rules. The fragment header, protocol 44, should not appear more than once in the list. Now, I ask you as security professionals, do you normally follow the rules when you're constructing an IPv6 frame in your SCAPI research tool? You're going to follow these rules, right? Exactly. No, I don't think so. In fact, you're probably going to experiment to see if you can break something. And I highly encourage that you do that, not in a production network. So header normalization is going to be a source of attacks. We can anticipate it. Normalizing and filtering is something that we are going to have to do, but then you suffer potential denial of service. I will make your filtering device work really hard, right? Hop by hop and destination options can be in, can also include padding to pad things to eight bit or octet boundaries. Can you say covert channel time, right? And then one of the really nasty ones, the route options header is similar to V for strict source, loose source routing, meaning send me all the things. And in fact, there was a very early attack published with the route options header that had a source route type of zero contained within it, and that became deprecated. And it sort of goes like this. The route options header, you can have multiple source route types, subtypes essentially, inside the header. And so what you could actually do is construct an IPv6 frame that contained multiple source route types header with repeating addresses, and you could essentially make a packet go from A to B, B to A, A to B, B to A, A to B, leading to what I would call a DDoS cluster futz. And so this is like just no fun at all, right? So we want to avoid packet oscillation. We definitely want to filter this particular attack at minimum. So perimeter devices should enforce the security extension header rules. They should have flexibility to filter not only specific header types, but also subtypes within the header. If there's any padding in the extension headers that are not initialized to zeros, that packet should be immediately dropped and any reserved, undefined, or experimental extension headers need to also be dropped. So whatever perimeter security device you have, you need to have some protocol normalization features in it that allow you to examine the extension headers and to take the appropriate precautions with your network. I think, uh, CJ, did you have a question, sir? Jeff, we got just tons of questions, but this one seemed like a little bit of a softball. Someone was asking you about, what do you think of using this for cellular devices? What do I think of using what? You mean IPv6 in general? Yeah, which is, uh, it's already being used, right? That's, too late. Yeah, we don't really have a choice. Cellular devices and anybody that's, that's in a highly mobile space with very large ISPs, you're probably using it. You don't know it, you're probably using it already because there is no IPv4. They don't have a choice. And uh, especially real-time protocols, voice video, they do not take to address translation very well. And so you're probably already using it. Yeah, we've got a ton of questions queued up, but I want to let you get through the content here. Yep, we're almost there. Address privacy and obscurity. So let's go back to EUI64, which is the extended unique identifier that uses the MAC address. If you think about it, an organization is probably going to buy a ton of machines for their network from the same manufacturer. This is how people do things. And if you think about that, they're probably going to have the same NICs in them. And let's imagine for a minute that that network interface device is an Intel NIC, and it has 
an organizational unique identifier on it of 0013E8, which is one of Intel's NICs. Well, in a V6 world, you automatically know that the bits in the link local address are going to have FE80213E8FFFE in there because of that NIC. You automatically know this. Okay, if that organization chooses that particular network card, meaning there are only 24 bits remaining to find a neighboring node in the link local scope address space. Slack also uses EUI 64. And so if Slack is deployed for the unique global address that is assigned to that device, then you will also know up to the remaining 64 bits, what the global unicast address is in that subnet. Go even further, we've got this. If we're sitting on a V6 subnet with link local, we can always use ping and ping to the FF01 colon colon one address. FF01, uh, sorry, 02 colon colon one is link scope local multicast. So we're doing a multicast ping and discovering all of the systems in the same subnet that have an address in the link local scope. And we're going to get an answer. And so we have now ha happily enumerated those systems. This can happen in a dual stack world as well. So you need to be cognizant of this and think about a little bit of filtering. Now, it is no different than V4. I can ping a subnet broadcast address in V4 and many, not all, devices will respond. But in V4, there's, there's been a lot of kernel switches to actually switch off that response. Not so much in V6. So that, that response is going to come back more than likely. So that's kind of interesting. RFC 4941 implements privacy extensions. And I highly recommend to enable this. Basically, what happens is you disable EUI 64. And that means the link state local address will be chosen randomly. And with Slack, the global unique address in that subnet will also be chosen randomly. There is a duplicate address algorithm that is run to deal with that. But you will not have predictable addresses based on the Ethernet NICs in that subnet. And from a security perspective, I think that's much more desirable. Route tables on the endpoint it will always be populated by ICMP v6 route advertisements. So any endpoint can advertise a route. Best practice here, do not allow your endpoints to advertise ICMP v6 routes. Either implement a host-based firewall rule with your group policies and or, and probably belt and suspenders is best, make sure you have a route advertisement guiding feature implemented and turned on in your switch network as well. Don't block neighbor discovery because you'll break your network, but you can block router advertisement from your endpoints. And as if there wasn't enough fun, I have to briefly mention the words NAT. And I'm going to skip skip over this mostly just to leave the slide up for fun. There is a proposal out for network address trans translation for IPv6. The proposal is focusing on address independence and not on the address translation functions. We don't need address translation. We don't have an address scarcity problem. We can still perform stateful firewalling and application traffic inspection. It does not require that. And I'm just going to leave it there, right? I don't think we need it. 
summary recommendations before I close out, and we and it's 150. It's amazing. Before we close out and we go to the the full Q and A, implement your anti-spoof, multicast, and bogon filtering. Control your ICMP traffic. Don't allow bogus router advertisements from end nodes. Enable the privacy extensions. Assign your addresses randomly within the sizable subnetworks, either using DHCPv6 or Slack, whatever works for you. Slack really is more of an ISP and, than an enterprise organization thing. I do recommend DHCPv6. Don't use NAT66 unless you really, really need address independence. That's really what that should be focused on. Minimize your denial of service risk by choosing perimeter security devices that can normalize the protocol headers properly. And for God's sake, do not trunk your VLANs everywhere because your switch will die a horrible multicast TCAM or CAM, which is kernel addressable memory exhaustion. In other words, you'll kill your network. Okay, so you're going to have to architect your networks properly. Tons of resources here. I found we'll we'll publish the slides anyway. I found APNIC very very useful. They have a lot of best practices. It's not because I'm just Australian, but APNIC was good. <laughs> there is some uh, great blog entries there. Pottery.net's got some great stuff. And then from the attack plague play space uh, perspective, THC, IPv6, and Kali, IPv6 Toolkit, and Kali. There is a book, it's a little bit older, called IPv6 Security by Scott Hogue. It's a Cisco Press book. I found that to be a pretty good read. Okay. Now, I'm out of breath and exhausted because I unloaded a whole lot of things on you. I want to divide this into actually three sessions now. This will be one of three. And I think the next session that we need to do is how to build your own IPv6 testbed using a tunnel broker. And then we need to go further and talk about leveraging IPv6 security tools for fun and profit. And then finally, I need more Twitter followers followers, because Tim Medine was boasting he got above 10,000, and I just cannot let that stand. So, Tim Medine, you're going down, my man. We're getting over 10,000. Dual IPv6 v4 stack sucks. Twice the work, half the fun. Sorry about that. Let's go to questions. Oh, yeah, baby. So, Joe asks, when will Black Hills b begin using IPv6 on their website and email? And my question is, we might already be. We don't have a large network, and we don't host a lot. So, um, so for us to implement v6 would not be a difficult thing to do because it would be public-facing, and I expect the system administrators, which all watch my webcast today, are going to implement all of that may be a little bit of an optimistic statement, but we're going to implement ex all of the recommendations that I've put out there in a cloud-facing environment and put our website up there. I hope so, because I know we can do it. Nice. So Martin has that, that generalist question. So is IV, IPv6 more or less secure than IPv4, which you sort of talked about, but like it seems like obviously it's going to be better, right? So walk us through it a little bit. So walk us through it. I don't think it is any more or less secure. I think it is just different. We had significant security problems in broadcast segments with IPv4. We have the same related security problems in IPv6 network segments with multicast. We have the same issues going on with selectively filtering traffic to make sure that you, can't, that you don't get infrastructure or LAN-focused traffic across your perimeter. 
We have the same issues with denial of service. We have the same issues with unallocated address space. I don't think it's more or less secure. I just think it's a matter of us jumping in and starting to take a bite at the apple. I think the biggest challenge for the information security community is the legacy problem. Dual stacking is going to be painful. I really wish we could just make the leap. But unfortunately, we're just not in that situation. And so my recommendation is for you to start experimenting at the perimeter first with a pure V6 world because you'll be able to get away without dual stacking in a cloud or a perimeter space. But inside of your network, you're going to be stuck with dual stacking until your network transition. Yes, that's so somebody asked a question like, you know, there's going to be devices out there. I think IoT, SCADA stuff, it's just not going to support this for 10 years. What's What's the solution or how do you work around? Yeah, so so for air gap networks and highly isolated networks, there's going to be situations where V4 is probably not going to go away. These embedded devices, like you say, have no capability of V6. They probably will not have in the foreseeable future. They have very little in the way of firmware update capability. It's a legacy we're going to have to deal with, but I would keep them as pure V4 if I was in that situation, and I would seg them, segment them accordingly. Marcello, give it a couple, baby. Marcello, your lips move, but we can't hear what you're saying. Mute. Damn mute button. Yeah, so I got I got a bunch of questions here. So I, I, this is going to be like a, a spitfire round here. I just caught the, uh, no, wait, that's that's me. Has anyone seen an assessment of the different randomization approaches taken by different DHCP v sixers? A very, very good question. In my reading, I have not encountered an assessment of the randomization that's used. And that was actually right on my to-do list starting with Internet Software Consortium DHCP v6 to actually start examining the randomization of the addresses that are given given out because that exact same question occurred to me as soon as I started subnetting out some of my subnets to longer prefixes than slash 64 as I was experimenting. And and I will I will bring that concept back into the testbed workshop, I think, when we when we get around to doing it. Will I'm assuming that this person means 5G, so I'm just going to... Will 5G be all IPv6, you know? I, I don't think it's going to be exclusive to, to IPv6. There's, there's a difference between the baseband and the actual network stack that's running on the device. I think you'll see a combination of V4 and V6 for some time in the cellular space, but, but, but purely, you know, this, this is one we could address to the big cellular providers. For the actual cell traffic they're carrying rather than the Wi-Fi that's on the phone and so forth, I bet you most of them are going to jump towards V6 because it's just a matter of numbers and having the address space to give out. And does your does your internal IP show up on the internet without NAT in IPv6? Yeah, so does it show up on the internet without NAT? Good luck finding it is my question. If you run your testbed network like I've been doing and you actually sit there with a TCP dump on the perimeter now and, and you just watch traffic for a while, you see nothing. This is the thing that's interesting about IPv6. Unlike V4, when you sit there with an open TCP dump on a V4 link that's that's globally routable, you see nothing but garbage, right? I mean, you see like backsplatter traffic, you see attack traffic, you see scan traffic, you see all this stuff. In V6, it is literally silent. And it's because the address space is so huge, there's very few attempts at actually trying to find those addresses that actually make it that actually get there, which is kind of interesting. And that is, 
Yeah. Question linked to that. And uh, let's see who was asking this. Alex, how do I know a host's IP address when I need to respond to an incident? You are going to love your DNS is my response to that. Right? DNS is going to be integrally important with IPv6 and the mechanisms to do dynamic DNS in terms of you know Windows Active Directory domain environments are going to end up registering v6s in the v6 addresses in the domain controller and and you're going to have to leverage your your DNS in order to respond to those incidents. You're not going to have a choice. Uh, I got another one at that. That's uh, a good one that asks, "What's the best way to handle segmentation in a small network where the ISP will only hand out a slash 64?" Yeah, so that's exactly the problem I ran into because. I used uh, Hurricane Electric, which is a tunnel broker, and they will give you one or more. Actually, they'll give you a number of slash 64s, which is an enormous amount of address space, right? So my immediate network hat went on, and I was like, well, I want to subnet this because I want to know what it's like to subnet IPv6. So you choose things on nibble boundaries, and I chose to separate my 64 from my subnet boundary by another eight bits. So I just made a cho choice to subnet at slash 72. Okay. And if you do the math on that, that still gives you, you know, a ton of potential subnets. You could su subnet at slash 80, but some nice either nibble or, or eight bit boundary for the subnets is fine. And it works exactly the same as V4 after that, although you do have to be aware that you cannot use stateless address order configuration because that protocol makes the assumption that you're in a slash 64 world. So you actually have to use DHCP v6 to allocate the addresses and you use a router advertisement protocol to actually appropriately advertise the routes into the subnets. And I will demo that when we get to workshop because I've actually done it and it and uh, certainly from a pure Linux perspective works and I, and I can't imagine in any other common network vendor that it's not going to work any differently. So just related to what you just said, because uh, Frank was asking about DHPv6, he said, unless I missed it, Android still doesn't support that, and Google has no intention to. Yeah, so it's an interesting area. So a lot of people are saying, well, look, I've got, I've got router advertisement protocol in the ICMP stuff with Neighbor Discovery, and I've also got Slack, which is the stateless link uh, address stuff. That's all I need because router advertisement protocol can supply a DNS address. It can supply the route table information and Slack can supply the address. So, you know, what more, what more information do I really need to give the endpoint? And so there will be vendors that make that choice, but that's going to force you into slash 64 subnets, which for most people is going to be common anyway. I don't think that's going to be an issue, but, you know, in your local networks, that might get interesting and actually just r reminds me that I need to make my Android a part of my subnet testing in my test bed to, to play with that exact concept.